And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. Welcome to Startup Hustle. This is a four-part special series on investment trends now and in the future. I have with me today a special guest, Arvind Gutba. He is a partner at Mayfield Fund and founder of IndieBio. But before we go to Arvind, let me thank our sponsor. So our sponsor is Fullscale IO, and they provide excellent software teams quickly and affordably. Now, I am your guest host, Steve Hoffman, or as they call me in Silicon Valley, Captain Hoff. I am the founder and CEO of Founderspace, one of the world's largest startup incubators and accelerators. We have over 50 partners in 22 countries, and we work with hundreds of entrepreneurs around the world. I'm also author of three books. My first book, published by Hachette, Make Elephants Fly, is all about the process of radical innovation. My second book, published by HarperCollins, is called Surviving a Startup, and it teaches entrepreneurs everything they need to know to grow and scale their businesses. And my third book, which just came out, is called The Five Forces That Change Everything, and it is about how new technologies are poised to transform our society and our lives. So with no further ado, let me introduce Arvind Gutba. Arvind, can you tell us a little about yourself, about IndieBio, about what you're doing at Mayfield, and how you got here? Sure thing. Uh, so uh, my last name, just for clarity, is Gupta. And, uh, and I you know, started as a genetic engineer and uh, immediately saw the power of being able to reprogram life to do more useful things for people. And by reprogramming life, you're actually just reprogramming energy systems. It's another way to think about life. Life is a self-contained energy system uh, that organizes matter and, and creates order from disorder by adding energy. And when you think of it that way, and you think of humanity as using energy in order to organize matter to expand our species, we've done it really, really well in the past. In the past two million years, humanity has learned to reorganize matter through energy in a way that no other animal species ever has. And something we've done in the past hundred years in getting so good at that is to begin to ruin our planet. And when I was in college and I was doing genetic engineering, I saw for the first time you could actually change the genetic material of a life form and change that energy equation and then potentially be able to make the things that we need for humanity without having to destroy our planet. 
The problem was 25 years ago or so, the tools were incredibly slow, laborious, and uh, not even trustworthy. Uh, they were hard to repeat. And so I went into product design and uh, learned to build products and really solve business problems through product, which is what I think businesses, that, that's how I think you do actually solve business problems. Um, you know, if you have a business problem, you go, go figure out how the product can solve it. Um, it and it's certainly true for all market-facing problems. And along the way, I learned uh, that you could actually think of, you could think of design and you could think of science as two sides of the same coin. And that got me incredibly excited about seven years ago to think about how we could reinvent um, the ability to make deep science companies as a product-focused business, as opposed to what you, it might sound obvious to everyone on you know listening to this right now, duh. But most scientists think of their their idea as a project, as a as understanding what it is that you know. Can you actually accomplish something? Can you learn something? Um, and science historically is open ended. Discover something, see where it goes, pull on the thread, and a body of work is accomplished in a lifetime. And that is the exploration of one person uh, within a certain field. And then you get the exploration across thousands of scientists within a field, and that's the progress of that, of that area. Now, the interesting thing is, when you think about it as a business, as as an as a actual project, uh, that not as a project, I'm sorry, as a business, what you end up doing is you put milestones in there. You say, what is, it, what is it that we need to do to meaningfully change the outcome for a person's life to create value? And then how do we build a business around it to, to be able to get paid for that value so we could continue expanding on, on what it is that we created? That is what I started thinking about and it culminated in a paper that I wrote in 2011 for the Journal of Com Commercial Biotechnology where I posited that design blended with um, scientific method could actually speed up R&D. And so I met a guy named Sean O'Sullivan in 2013, 2012 really, um, and started talking to him about this idea. And he had just started a, a uh, he was an investor and he started a accelerator called Hacks, which was a hardware accelerator. And I said to him, I said, look, this is actually a pretty interesting idea and, and um, framework for biotech. And I think this could actually really work well. And so Sean agreed. So I joined SOSV um, as a GP and that's the beginning of IndieBio. Um, and so in the next, in 2013, I joined in the next seven years, uh, I built IndieBio into what it is today. Um, invested in over 160 companies. Uh, the enterprise value is well north of five or six billion now um, with the recent uh, two unicorns we have. Um, let's see. I'm really proud of the fact that 40% of the founders are women, uh, you know, and more than 50% are, uh, are minorities. Uh, it's, it, it's important to me because the fundamental premise of IndieBio is you take people that the Valley didn't see as fundable. And you say, no, we believe that you can create something great 
because as a scientist, you're fundamentally creative and driven. And so you just need to learn some of the business side, which is actually as easy as logic. So that's what IndieBio was, and it made a bet on people, really. It didn't make it, IndieBio doesn't make a bet on science. It makes a bet on people and, and says that all people are capable with the right tools and backing. So that's, that's what IndieBio was, and, uh, and, and, and it turned, like I said, it turned into what it is today. And um, about a year and a half ago, so we, are, we have now a New York office, uh, there's a San Francisco office, and about a year ago I realized that you know, what I, I started IndieBio to really make, move the needle on human and planetary health. That's the focus. And about a year ago, I realized, look, um, there's an incredible team in place in San Francisco and New York, and the marginal benefit to, to society by me being at IndieBio is less than it was when I started IndieBio. So how do I continue my marginal benefit to society um, and that's when I realized, okay, I should go learn Series A and later stage investing because IndieBio, honestly, without me there, is just as good, if not better now. And so I decided, okay, well, if I'm going to learn that, I want to learn from the very best. So I talked to the, you know, the top funds and Mayfield stuck out, really stuck out as a fund that has leadership and partners that truly believe in the things that I believe, um, that we could do better by fighting capitalism uh, with better capitalism and and investing in in human and planetary health is something that can not just create returns but but be better for humanity so i joined as a general partner um uh, about a year ago and uh and i co-lead the engineering biology practice with uh urshit parik and you reminded me in your intro, Steve, that um, yes, I wrote a book too. <laughs> I forget about all these things. I, I wrote, um, hold on, let's see, it's right here. Uh, I wrote a book called Decoding the World with Poe Bronson, published by Hachette. Here's the paperback, it's just about to come out. Um, the hardcover's been out for a year uh, as an Amazon bestseller, and excited to, uh, to share that with the world. And that book is really about um, my journey and Poe's journey um, in discovering the truths of the world. Um, and it's called A Roadmap for, uh, for Our Times uh, because it really goes in and questions headlines and what do things really mean in the same exact way we do as investors. That's fantastic. Yeah, I know Poe Bronson. He's written a lot of books. He's yeah. very prolific. He's a great guy for you to partner with. And clearly, you have a lot of ideas of your own about the world, about where we're headed with science. I want to ask you, um, what are the investment trends right now that you're most excited about, that you think will have the biggest impact on society, on the world, on this planet moving forward? Well, uh, you know, there's a lot. Like, the only thing that's constant right now is the rate of change is increasing. And, I, I you know, and I... And I for me as an investor, that's that's an amazing thing, um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of trends all happening simultaneously, and we can kind of go down the list a little bit. But I think from a meta theme, what's known as ESG or sustainability, uh, environmental sustainability and governance is what it stands for, is become something that Wall Street has embraced, which means literally hundreds of billions of dollars are flowing in that direction now. Um, and that's a good thing. 
that's a really good thing. And IndieBio was founded on investing in these types of companies in a fundamental new way. So it's been great for IndieBio. Um, what I'm doing at Mayfield is rooted in this. And so it's great for Mayfield, I think. Um, and it's great for, for society. So within that, I see three broad areas. One is electrification. So Tesla is a great example of that just became a trillion dollar company. Um, but alongside that, batteries are going to be important. I think storage is more important than production. I think we need clean energy production, but we have a big problem with storage. So most of the, you know, if you have a windmill going and it stops, it's not like you can, you could take the energy that it was making during the day and then like, oh, we'll just take it because that's dumped in the ground. And I think like that's a, you know, we ever, everyone talks about fusion reactors, right? Oh, we'll have, we'll have a little star and all our energy problems are gone. It's actually not true because we kind of have that like nu nuclear fission is that sure it has toxic waste at the end, but, but it is a very powerful form of clean energy um, without, you know, from a carbon perspective. So the, why hasn't fission reactors and nuclear reactors uh, solved all our energy problems because of storage. And so I think that's going to be the true, um, the true bottleneck when broken allows the needle to really move. So I'm looking a lot at battery technologies uh, and new chemistries there. Um, if we look at uh, the next big bucket is rematerialization, something I call rematerialization. By the way, these are like $10 trillion total addressable markets, right? So this is not small. Um, rematerialization is this idea that uh, IndieBio is well known for, which is make something in a new way, generally using biology. So egg whites without the chicken, meat without the cow, uh, food and ag is a huge part of this. And the um, other question around like leathers and uh, wood, steel, concrete, all of this has to get decarbonized. And there's efforts in all of those areas. So you, know, you, know, you may not know this, but there are green steel companies um, from Sweden to here in the States. I there's, didn't know. How do they make green steel? There's a lot of different ways, but one is you're using uh, green energy sources in order to heat everything up. So basically electric, you know, rather than blast furnaces, using electricity and arcs to heat things up in, in a, you know, with, with green car carbon sources, green energy sources, and then removing other ways of removing the carbon sources within the steels and things like that. So, you know, with, Concrete, the same thing is how do you get the, how, how do you make clinkers or the, the part that's really uh, where you drive carbon dioxide out of the clinker um, in order to make concrete that you can mix with water and it, it sets. That needs to get reinvented. And so there's a bunch of different ways from biology, adding bacteria to, to, to cement in order mm -hmm. to have that get mineralized um, to accreting uh, to a, you know, accreting cement in baths uh, that are that have high amounts of carbon dioxide that have been gasified in essence. So yeah, a, I, I was I was shocked when I heard how much greenhouse gas emissions concrete is responsible for. I mean, most people don't yeah. even think about that. Eight percent. It's huge. Yeah, it's enormous. Okay. So these are yeah. So all of these areas have investment. All of them. 
and uh, and that's what's exciting to me is all of these are are huge markets and um, and venture dollars are flowing into into them all. And then finally, of course, is food. Um, you know, foods an area I have a lot of experience in, and you know, from our, our food system is is gargantuan, but it's also a huge uh, part of the carbon um, footprint of, of our society. So being able to decarbonize our food supply chain is an important one. If you think about cell agriculture, the important, or, you know, it's not, it's not just getting rid of the cows, although that's a huge, huge part of it, but you're also not, if you can grow meat in a brewery, the, in the equivalent of a brewery, well, that can go in the middle of a city or it could go all over a city. And what are the transportation costs, the shrinking of the supply chain from, you know, thousands of miles from Central America, or the middle of America to the coast to, you know, a mile and a half away or two miles away from the city center. So all of this is, um, is being reinvented. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of innovation in um, and trend, you know, trend in the governance side. So how do you know that people are using the carbon that they're saying they're using? How do you know who's um, emitting carbon more than, you know, they, they're saying they're emitting. So tracking all of that is going to be important and also tracking incentives because that's going to be the easiest thing. Like, Leather without the cow, although it's almost there, isn't available in, you know, quantities that can replace all leathers tomorrow. So we're going to need behavioral um, incentives in the interim. And so a lot like Planet Labs, a lot of the space companies are going to be able to provide some data. So there's going to be a lot of data aggregation and supply chain tracking software. So this is where blockchain and a lot of the web 3.0 stuff that you've probably heard of a lot about um, or might be involved in could come in. Like personally, I am desperately looking for web 3.0 companies that are trying to use uh, decentralization dApps and, uh, and web 3.0 to make a dent in planetary health. So if you have one out there, give me a call. Um, I think like that's, that's an area that we haven't seen yet at all. And I think, you know, if I'm to make, if I'm to make a prediction, right. I think like that's an area that's going to continue to expand over time. Um, yeah. So let's talk about that. Do you think, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations that are basically run on the blockchain are a viable way uh, to address these issues? And if so, how? I don't know the answer to that, Steve, right? Like I'm just starting to dive into it. Like, it's kind of funny. I say, I write about this in my book. Um, at IndieBio, uh, my door guy, who IndieBio is kind of in a rougher neighborhood, and so um, I'm an MMA fighter, and uh, I hired a couple of the MMA guys at my gym to run the door. One of the door guys was studying Bitcoin and Ethereum at the time, and actually one of the first Ethereum meetup in San Francisco was held at IndieBio. I was heads down focused on building IndieBio, but he's made 20, you know, he's made a lot of money uh, doing doing that kind of stuff, and it's just kind of like, so I couldn't like I'm not a crypto guy, okay? That's like let me just be very clear as to what I'm not. I know I, I know what I am and I know what I'm not. Um, that being said, 
I do not think I've been I've been looking into this a little bit more because I wanted to wrap my head around this new technology. And I think, you know, whatever someone thinks of Bitcoin being a store of value or not is less interesting to me than this idea of smart contracts enabling if this then that type of statements on the web. Yeah. That absolutely. The, that, absolutely. That's it, right? Like that's the like when I look at that abstracted. I see a powerful agent of changing incentives. Why? Because, you know, like I did my startup, it's called Starters with my wife. And what we did was, you know, if you took, if you exercise for a certain amount of day, it sent a text messages to, to your friends and they could like give you badges and things like that. And, and, you know, text you say, hey, congrats. Well, you know, with the DAO and, and Web 3.0, you, you could actually just get some money. Like, you know, I take 10,000 steps and it pays me 10 bucks. Yeah. From your boss, maybe your employer lowering their health care yourself, Or even, yeah, yes. your, or yourself. If you put out together a little kid, like, like that, like if I was to build starters now, like that, like that was far more of an incentive. <laughs> like, cause we were saying, how do you incentivize people? Like, oh, you give them a pat on the shoulder, right? Like, well, no, you know, money is one of the great incentives in the world, right? It's not the only one, but it's one of the great ones. And uh, great being, you know, a prime mover, uh, not a qualitative great. But like, um, I think, so when you start looking at it that way and you've got communities getting monetized by influencers um, rather than the other way around, right? Brands getting, you know, like monetizing an influencer. I think what what ends up happening is you get, you, you have all the pieces to create ground up behavior change. And that's what's missing from climate activism and climate change. And so I don't know the answer, but I'm hoping one of your listeners do. Um, Because, uh, you know, I just, I've just started this, this inquiry and I I just see something so powerful, so powerful. Um, Yeah. While we're, while we're still on the crypto topic, what about Bitcoin using so much energy and a lot of it polluting energy? So there it's a non-starter. It's a non-starter. I mean, like, you, you know, my guess is they'll fork to a proof of stake at some point, right? Like, I think he, I don't know the mechanics of forking sub, uh, a network as large as Bitcoin at this point, but I think at some point, you know, again, because the only thing that everyone can agree on about Bitcoin is that it's powerful because everyone agrees on it. Right? So like it, that, that is the reason why it could turn around in a second. Right, because all of a sudden you could make an alternative that is climate friendly, and if everyone agrees, like the climate actually matters enough to make this change, well, then everyone will make the change. I don't think that has happened yet, but I don't think the forest fires have gotten bad enough. I don't think the floods have gotten bad enough. I don't think enough. Well, I hope they don't get worse. Although they will. I, mean, it's just, I know it, they will. Of course they will. And it's, it, and that's my point, right? It's like, you know, again, I wrote, in the, we wrote in the book. Climate change needs its 9-11 moment, unfortunately. I don't know what that's going to be, but it will happen. And that's the moment at which everyone turns around and says, no, no, this has to become a national security issue. And really, if we're smart, it would we would be saying that right now because we're going to be paying for it 10x, 20x, 100x more by waiting. But you know that. We don't need yeah. to talk about that. I want to ask you a couple of questions. One, 
quickly, do you think urban farming is viable? Where they do these in-house farms, you know, robotics like Iron Ox, that's one startup doing it. There are lots of others. Yeah. Um, you know, three years ago, I would have said no. Um, I've changed my mind. I'll tell you why. I changed my mind because there are, if, if you take a plant that grows in a field and stick it in a warehouse and then pay for all the lights <laughs> to light it up, yeah, it's not going to work because you're taking something that's not optimized for or something that's optimized for one condition, putting in something that's suboptimal for another, and then adding a bunch of cost. It's not going to work. But what's happening is people are figuring out how to optimize these plants, growth patterns for, for lighting conditions. Uh, all of a sudden, all the variables of being outside become, uh, you know, like you could tweak and you could play with. And, uh, and that's, that's a very powerful thing. And it's, it's amazing how much efficiency you can get out of it. Um, and then you, of course, there's space, so you learn. And I think one of the things that over and over again has been illustrated to me in my venture and design career is people will say something will never work based on their experience. It's always based on their experience. And their experience is always based in something that is adjacent to what they're looking at. It's not on top of. And so, like, I love the Mark Twain quote, right? It's not what you what you don't know that kills you. It's what you what you know that just ain't so. And uh, and that's just it, it's so often true because if I like I say this about IndieBio, if I knew what I know today, it would have been way harder for me to start IndieBio because I would be like that's probably not going to work because most it probably wouldn't have worked. And I think. Um, you know, which is why you see oftentimes young people come in and disrupt a status quo because they're not polluted with knowledge oftentimes. So, you know, yes, I think vertical farming can work. Um, right. You know, and then uh, I would like to see it work, yeah. you know, especially with climate change. We're going to need to rethink how we farm because it's yeah. very, very, uh, uh, you know, it'll be hard, harder and harder to farm in certain regions of the world. Maybe impossible. That's right. That's turn into deserts. So uh, another huge step forward is CRISPR. So uh, gene editing, uh, gene therapies, all of this. What do you see um, happening with CRISPR over the next decade? And, and where will that take us? Yeah, cr great question. CRISPR is one of these extremely um, powerful innovations, a very hyped innovation. Um, and like anything, the distance between the imagined applications and here is further than people think, but what we actually accomplish with it is far more powerful than we can imagine today. So it's, it's a pretty, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, just in a nutshell for the people that don't, don't know. CRISPR is a, um, it's a system, a protein that evolved in bacteria to defend itself against viruses. We can use it. It's basically a little Google search for a genome. And if it sees a certain sequence, it cuts the genome, kills, killing the genome. So what 
uh, Jennifer Doudna and uh, Feng Zhang, the, the discoverers and, and Nobel Prize laureates of uh, this technology. I'm sorry, Feng not on the Nobel Prize, Jennifer Doudna to be clear, um, really understood and did was they saw that this is a way of searching the human genome and making a precise cut, which could then be used as an edit to insert or knock out a gene. So that's what CRISPR is in a nutshell. Now, right, right now it's being used for what's called ex vivo genetic engineering. We take cells out of our bodies, we put the CRISPR in in a dish, and we take those modified cells and put them back in our bodies. And the reason we do that is because delivering CRISPR to all the cells in our body, inside of our body is very difficult because we have an immune system. And this immune system attacks foreign things, as we all know. CRISPR, if it just gets injected naked into the bloodstream, gets degraded very quickly because we also have protein. We have things that break down foreign proteins and stuff. There's a reason we could live for a very long time without succumbing to natural disease. Um, and so... And just to be clear, what you're talking about is gene therapy right now. Correct. Uh, so that becomes the big question. Can we do gene therapy in vivo, inside our bodies? We've been doing gene therapy ex vivo, like I explained, where you take the cells and then you modify them and put them back in. Um, and so really delivery is one of the big bottlenecks of gene therapy as a industry. Um, because you need to be able to evade the immune system, find the cells you need to get into and get into those and then have the, have the CRISPR be delivered. And then it does its thing. And all of this has to be done in a way that's repeatable and it has to be done in a way that's predictable. And, you know, like it's, it, medicine is an extreme, extremely complex and precise thing and, you know, field. So it's, it makes it very, very hard. That being yep. said, I think CRISPR is going to revolutionize uh, the way we think about gene therapy and editing because new CRISPR systems are being constantly found. And that means CRISPR systems with different qualities and properties. And so we don't, we're not trying to take a one, you know, one hammer and find, all, oh, there's a screw. If we hit that screw hard enough with a hammer, it'll just go in. Well, no, let's go find a screwdriver, right? And that... And that's, I think, what's the power of CRISPR as a generalized system is we can look out in nature and find starting points of that screwdriver and then tweak that and get it to be perfect. Um, yeah, so what you're yeah. saying is really interesting. Basically, let me summarize it. You're saying right now we have a first generation, very crude in instrument for gene editing. What you see the promise is in is not necessarily this instrument, but the instruments that come after it. And that will allow us to do all types of much more advanced gene editing, maybe even in the body itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, like I said, you know, the first one that we found is CRISPR-Cas9. It's great. But now there's, I mean, CRISPR-Cas9, there's, you know, Vertex just announced a partnership with Mammoth around, around these different smaller CRISPR systems. Why does smaller matter? Because you could package it into different types of carriers into your body, right? Again, that evade the immune system and things like that. Um, so I think that's where I think that's where CRISPR is going as a general tool, right? Like 
but overall, gene therapy is a holy grail, I mean, the literal holy grail of medicine, because if we could do in vivo gene therapy at will, we can solve for a huge amount of diseases that are that have no cures today. And we can start talking about curing rather than treating. Yes. In the past 50 years, we haven't cured anything. So it's amazing. You know, we've we've cured diseases prior to the past 50 years with you know, antibiotics and things like that, where you can clear out a, you know, an infection, but we can't, we, you know, there's no cure for cancer. We have treatments yeah. for cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, I'm very, very excited for the future of gene therapy. Yeah. It can, it can literally wipe out disease at some point in our future. Now I want to first, uh, thank the sponsor of startup hustle, full scale IO. Uh, they provide software teams quickly and affordably back to our topic about gene editing. So you were describing the medical applications in gene therapy. There's a whole nother area for CRISPR that's really exciting, and that is editing uh, plants and animals, the genes yep. of plants and animals. So I know a startup, Aquabounty, has released a gene-edited salmon that grows twice as fast. Uh, it's pretty amazing, and they got permission now from the FDA to actually sell this to consumers, so people could be buying this in their supermarket. Right. What do you think of this and the future of that for our food supply? Yeah. So, you know, this whole GMO being bad, it's, um, it's kind of too bad. It's too bad that, that Monsanto and the way they were using GMO was to lock out customers and, and do things to increase yield and profit, um, without thinking about the customer in mind because it really soured the world on this incredible and powerful tool for humanity called genetically modifying organism. And I think like that's starting to change. People are becoming more educated. Oh, wait, you know, like a GMO rice with a lot more nutrients in it could be better for myself, right? Like that's starting to sink in and maybe that's not so bad. And it still feels a little like, Everyone says Frankenstein, like, oh, wait, we're going to bring something to life that didn't have life before. Well, it's, it's not quite Mary Shelley, right? but um, it's, it's important to, uh, to disambiguate genetically modifying organisms in order to solve problems for customers and doing GMO to solve problems for businesses. Yes. And we know Monsanto, they wanted a monopoly. Uh, so they have all these patents and they'll sue anybody who infringes on their patents. And they've been pretty aggressive about that. But what you're saying, I think, is absolutely right. Um, the potential uh, for GMO products is enormous. And we're going to need this to feed the world, to feed the world with a climate that's changing rapidly, to address a whole all sorts of problems, both on this planet and if Elon Musk has his way on Mars and other planets. Um, what are some of the innovations you kind of see in the pipeline that are going to have a big impact? I mean, there's an incredible amount, right? So we could talk about even just, I'll give you ranges, right? Like one from modifying rice to be able to grow in the ocean by pumping the salt out and just keeping the water um, to uh, creating protein sweeteners with zero calories. Um, but a thousand times sweeter than sugar uh, that break down instantly uh, after binding to your taste buds and growing that in, in things like lettuce uh, to making 
chocolates uh, and cacao. Like there's so many ways that we can reinvent how we're making our food supply chain. And I'm not just talking about meat, right, without the cow, but all of these products and ingredients uh, can be made from genetically modified plants uh, and genetically modified single cell organisms like yeast and E. coli. Yes. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, the possibilities are endless for what we can do. And we could be developing new types of fruits and vegetables that you could combine a peach with a strawberry and have a strawberry flavored peach, really crazy stuff that could be on the store shelves, which could be exciting for people. And then I heard like at the University of Florida, they are genetically modifying cows so that they can withstand higher temperatures. That's a whole nother thing. I didn't hear about this. Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. <laughs> heat resistant cows. Oh, heat resistant cows and maybe heat resistant humans at some point. Oh my God. I hope it doesn't come to that. So I, I have a question for you. Do you see a point where we're using this technology that we can really uh, breed new types, new species of plants and animals? Do you see us using this on human beings uh, in terms of next generation, like designer babies? Like, will we be right now? Most people would say no. But at some point it could come, and I'm wondering about your thoughts. Yeah, um, I actually write about this in my book as well. Hold on, let me plug. I didn't realize that the computer wasn't plugged in. <laughs> You're going off. <laughs> it's about to die, so I better, I better not lose that. Okay, there we go. We're safe. Um, yeah, so designer babies. Not for a long time. I'll just cut to the chase, and I'll tell you why. Because, again, um, being sure you've modified. So first of all, you have to, how do you create a a designer baby? You artificially in vitro inseminate a, an egg sperm. Then you take that fertilized egg and inject your uh, genetic material that you want to modify with. Now you've got to create, you've got to make sure, and it's not just one cell, right? It's it's divided a couple of times. So, you know, you've got to make sure all the edits have hit all the cells. Otherwise you've created what's called a chimera. A chimera is from mythology where you're half man, you know, half, half lion, half man, half, half human, half beast. Now that can easily happen in a, in a, when you're genetically modifying a, a, a zygote. And so, and that's actually what happened with the Chinese um, doctor who. So those gen- children are chimeras? Yes. Wow. So they're trans, they're the first transgenetic humans. Yes. Um, and, you know, in the end, the children are hopefully safe and healthy and, and happy. But, you know, are they fully HIV resistant? Um, sure, he's out. I don't, I don't, I haven't seen data um, on, on the result of that. And even if they are, was, is it worth the risk that they might not be healthy? That's right. Or, you know, is, there's so many things that need to be controlled where this genetic material inserts has to be precise. Otherwise, if it goes into the middle of a certain gene, like a tumor suppressor gene, well, you could turn on a cancer. Um, that, and that actually, that happens all the time. So one of the major ways ha- cancer happens is uh, you get a recombination in certain places where you're turning on genes that were not meant to be turned on. Um, and so I think the designer baby thing is just going to take a, a much longer time than technology uh, exists for today. And here's the... Here's the, the truth. We'll be using it for healthcare and monogenetic disease because we just don't understand the things that you and I 
care about creativity. What's the creativity gene? Like, what would you want to do a designer baby around? So you're asking me, people would want intelligence. They would want health. So they, uh, diseases aren't passed down from generation to generation. They would want perhaps looks, skin color, eye color, body muscle, all these different things. Other than health being monogenetic diseases that are being passed down from generation to generation, looks, intelligence, creativity, singing ability, <laughs> you name it. Those are all poly, polygenetic, you know, networks of genes mixed with a healthy dose of environmental cues. <laughs> like those are just so, so non-deterministic. So non it's hard to say, oh yeah, I could modify a baby. So you're, you can't isolate a few genes and make that happen. It, it's, it's, it's way too complex. In, in the polygenetic difference between, in other words, the, all the genes involved in intelligence, if you take the, the number one gene is like 1% difference, which isn't even in the noise of the study. So yeah. there is no gene for intelligence as much. Okay. So, so it's going to be a long while before we, we can even attempt that, let alone make it work. That's now, right. I, I want to ask you, because we're kind of nearing the end of our time, what are some of the craziest ideas you've heard about in deep science. So you're in deep science now, you're kind of seeing what's going on. What are things that would just make the audience's ears turn red? I don't know. I mean, like, uh, uh, what have we covered so far? Growing rice in the ocean, you know, like uh, making meat in inside of incubators and not on a cow. Like it, it's, I mean, all of this stuff should, should make your ears turn red already, to be honest. I, I think um, you know, I, I think some, like if it's hard so for me, let me, let me ask you, so <laughs> there's, there's some things I've been hearing about. Don't know if they're viable, Please. you know, people pulling water out of air, right? Sure. Because, you know, we're having a water shortage around the world. Yeah. There's a water crisis. Um, how viable is that? Completely viable. And there's, there's water vapor everywhere, right? Like there's a moisture content in the air. But is it energy efficient? It, would it make sense financially to do it? Uh, so making sense financially is an interesting question, right? Because it's a, it, the, it, that the answer hinges on need. If I've got water in a tap and it's fine, do I need water from the air? No. What, what price would I pay for the water in the air? Nothing. Um, if I have no water from a tap and I don't have water down the street and I don't have water anywhere except for moving and there's a panel I can put on my roof and I'll get you know, enough water for our city. Would I pay a tax for that? Pretty high tax, potentially. So I think like a lot of this stuff that we're talking about has a demand side, but also a supply side component. And it's e that's, that's why I say, when you're looking at an adjacency from a deep tech point of view, it's easy to say that won't work because you're thinking about it from your context that you live in today. And this is the whole, uh, to, to use a terribly overused saying, right? Like going where the puck is going. And I think like, and I write in the book, right? Their, their technological revolutions are never happen without a social component, without a social revolution to go with it. And I, I actually talk about Martin Luther um, and the Reformation uh, as a prime example of not just creating science by rejecting the, the writings of God outright, um, which was actually kind of a 
re rediscovery of, of uh, the natural philosophers from the Greek times. But anyway, I digress. Um, it's, you know, it's really important that uh, you're, you're kind of like looking, looking forward into the context that is going to be needed. And so, yeah, water vapor from, from roofs, absolutely true. Um, you know, like what's really wild. I mean, we're, what we're talking about is figuring out your health from your breath, right? Using biomarkers inside of your breath to say every morning you wake up, you brush your teeth and breathe into this thing. And it kind of clears you for, for major issues. I think diagnostics has been a terrible area of investment for the past 20 years, 15 years. That's starting to change with the amount of things we could measure. Right. Um, and so that's an area I see, and it's remarkable how little we know of about our own health on a daily basis. Like, it, like just think about it. Like, all the things that could kill us. I don't know yeah. what my, my heart attack risk is right now. I don't know what my cancer is. Yeah, like, so that's... And, an and you go to your doctor, you don't get much information because they're rushed. They spend 15 minutes with you. It's not even that. They, they, don't, they don't even have the tools to be able to do it. Yeah. What are they going to do? What are they going to look at you? <laughs> I'm going to ask you, how do you feel? feel you fine. get more from the lab tests you do afterwards. <laughs> 100%. And then the question is, how do you tie all those lab tests in the country to all the people's result, uh, phenotypes? Right, to so, get real and, data that we can yeah. use. And, and, and so those things, right, big data on that, that you could plumb with AI and find correlations that the human eye and brain can't find. Those are the things that still need to happen in healthcare. So. Man, you know, like I'm not surprised by anything these days. So when you ask me that question, it's really, it is kind of hard, right? Like, um, yeah, I just look back at things. And I'm always like shocked, like Planet Labs. Who would have thought shooting a bunch of, you know, cameras into space would turn into a, a massive business? Because yeah. you're like, this is what I mean, right? It's like, yeah, we can't even, we don't even know. Sometimes it's the changes that we overlook that have the biggest impact. Like we, we, we don't think much of them, you know, when the transistor came out, they're like, oh, great. You know, what are you going to do? Make some calculators? <laughs> you know, they didn't foresee the whole computer revolution. That was a, a huge thing. So we're coming near the end of our time. Um, you know, I want to I want to highlight one point you made that was really salient. And that was, you know, Martin Luther, you know, the change in doctrine there for the church uh, that you were basically saying that brought about the enlightenment, all of science. And it brought about not because of the changes they had to the doctrine of the church, but because we rejected an established social order. And therefore everybody, everything was going, everybody's mind opened up. Suddenly anything was possible. People were, you know, becoming scientists and challenging the status quo. So uh, am I correct in that? hundred percent. I mean, that's in the same way Indie Bio was being, was able to be built it rejected this idea that you have to invest in your friends only from the old biotech vcs and no yeah the old way of doing bio yes no yeah. one's qualified to do anything except for me and my friends but, but you could go out and get hackers out there who had an idea and a phd and no you know they hadn't done anything yet and just give them a chance so th yeah that was brilliant uh, indie bio is amazing i've read about it in the past you you've done, you're you're kind of one of the guys pushing the forefront of that and i commend you it has been fantastic having you on the show let me wrap up first by thanking our sponsor. So Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, an amazing company that provides software teams more affordably and faster than anyone else. And I want to give uh, you a chance to say a little about your background, and then I'll wrap up the show and how people can reach you. 
Yeah. I, you've heard about my background, so I'll just tell you, you know, you can reach me at uh, arvind at mayfield.com. Uh, you could, you know, I'm all over the web. I'm on Twitter. Uh, just type me into Twitter, uh, A-R-V-N-D-G-P-T-A. Um, Instagram as well. They don't post much on Instagram. Uh, you can look up my book on Amazon. It's pretty simple to get a hold of me. So look, if you're if if you're someone who believes you have an idea that can that can make history and you believe you have the energy to make it happen um i'm a great partner uh for for those types of founders uh because that's what i'm looking for yeah you would be an amazing partner so thank you yeah, and if sure. you want to reach me steve hoffman you can find me on linkedin you can also go to founderspace that's founderspace.com uh, you can reach out to me there. Just contact me on it. We have tons of information for entrepreneurs. You can submit your business plans. We have videos and online programs. Check it out. And you can also check out my podcast there. So Arvin, thank you so much and good luck. Look forward to collaborating with you in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.